Psalm 19, 1, 9. You can find it in the Pew Bible on page 541. It says it's for the director of music, a psalm of David. Psalm 19 is a celebration of knowing God, and it's an invitation to know him through his word. So I hope that we find encouragement and help and guidance in our pursuit, in our quest to know God. Psalm 19, page 541 in the Pew Bible. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Father, would you... Work in our hearts today by your word. We thank you that it's perfect. It's so precious. It does such amazing, wonderful things in the lives of your followers. Would you work in the life of each one here today as we hear you speak from your word, which you've given to us. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen. So there's a a new kind of sports injury, or at least um, it's a a new way to get a sports-related injury. Uh, It's called taking a selfie on the track. So, you know, people get so excited about being at an event, and they want to, you know, they have cell phones, and they want to post on social media. So they get their cell phone out and and, uh, kind of look at... The, the runners that are coming, and then they try to get in a better position, and, and they find themselves in the middle of the track, and then uh, one guy was even, uh, you know, hit by a motocross motorcycle that, you know, went a little bit wider than, than was expected. Um, you know, runners complain 
that their races are being interrupted by people from the audience stepping in. And you know, that, that little reality reminds us of the difference of perspective between a participant and an audience member. Um, J.I. Packer, in his classic book about knowing God, talked about this difference in perspective, that there are those who are on the journey, who are making the decisions and taking action and persevering and trying to move ahead with their journey. And then there are those by the side of the road watching from a balcony and discussing the journey, and they know all about what it's like to be on the journey. And they can even ask questions of those who are on the journey and and talk with them as they pass by and comment on the journey while they sip their drinks and discuss what it's like to be on the journey. Knowing God is a journey, and we can discuss it as uh, an audience member, or we can step in and participate. Psalm 19 is written by a man on the journey to know God. And it's written for people who are on the journey or would be on the journey or maybe uh, might get interested in being on the journey as they hear about it. So it's a call to know God. As you look at the psalm, there are two ways to know God. The first has to do with the heavens declaring and proclaiming, and the second, starting with verse 7, has to do with the word of God, God himself proclaiming. But really what the psalm is about is one way to know God, one perfect way, and that is through the word of God, through the Bible, which God has given to us. And uh, the other, through nature and through the heavens, is sort of a partial way, sort of a halfway. So we're going to take the two together and try to really understand the message of how to come to know God through the Bible. God calls people to know him through his word. And to know God, to, begin, to, to, to reach a destination on this journey of knowing God, you have to begin. So to know God, you have to begin making his acquaintance. You have to have that moment of discovery. You have to discover God. And so that's the first thing that I see here in Psalm 19, the first four verses, is the heavens declaring the glory of God and making him known. God calls us to discover him. And uh, in these first four verses, the heavens declare the glory of God God is made known without words. God is discovered without words. So the heavens tell what they know. And of course, you know, the heavens uh, in the Bible are the dwelling place of God. Oh, what a story they could tell if they could talk because of what they are able to witness and what they know. Well, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. They can't keep quiet, and here's how they talk, by being the work of his hands. This is how nature speaks about God. And so uh, what is in the heavens is created by God, and God speaks through them because he took action and made them as they are. And then 
verse 2, they can't stop talking. They keep talking and talking and talking and telling what they know about God. So day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge because the knowledge of God is so wonderful. There's no end to what you can say, just as the skies are always showing a different view to us as we look. Then verse 3, it's a little interesting. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Actually, what I think this is saying is that there are no words. So there are two ways of translating this verse, and uh, I, I think that uh, the way that's, that's used here in our Pew Bible, in the NIV, that uh, there, there's no place where their voice is not heard. It's easier to understand. It's a smoother translation. But I don't think it's really the right translation. If you look down at the footnote, uh, there you'll see uh, a different way of putting it, the footnote for number three. They have no speech. There are no words no sound is heard from them. The heavens speak, but they never say anything because they don't know how to talk and they don't have words. So they make this picture show and you see this amazing display day and night and yet you never quite get what the message is. You just realize that it must be something great that they want to tell us. But clouds don't know any language and they don't know how to speak. They don't know how to speak. Nevertheless, verse 4, their voice goes out into all the world, their words to the ends of the world. So the, uh, the glory of God is something that can't be contained. It has to be told, even to the ends of the world. Even if you don't have speech, And it has to be told day after day, continually and without stopping. So God is discovered without words. When we look at nature, we look at creation, and we see what he's done, what he's made. And then, if if we can just skip down to verse 7, from verse 7 through 9, we see that God is discovered with words. Oh, what a difference. And uh, so in verses 7 through 9, there are, there are six couplets, two couplets in each verse. And uh, in, uh, in each of these, uh, the word of God is made known by God himself. God speaks. And then there are eight characteristics of God's word. When God speaks, he speaks, and it's perfect, and it's trustworthy, and it's right, and radiant, and it's pure and enduring, and it's sure and righteous. And so these characteristics of God's word, which are characteristics of the Bible, are characteristics of God who speaks through the Bible. And so we come to know God when we come to know his word. It's the same way that you learn about people. You talk to them, and you listen to them, and that's how you get to know them. And so it's great to look at the things that God has made, like you can look at the things that an artist has made, 
And you can learn about the artist and, and see what an amazing artist that person is. And there must be, I'd love to get to know that person. But then you talk to the individual and you hear their words and that's how you really get to know the person. And so there's a difference when we finally come to opening the Bible and we really learn about God. I wanted us just to look at the first two of these characteristics in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. And uh, it's such a difference, such a contrast with the heavens. Because the heavens are declaring day after day and night after night. And they continually pour forth speech. And they can never say enough. And they can never quite get their point across. So the next day they have to start all over again and try again to say it. And there's no end to all the things that can be said. But when God speaks, it is perfect. It's done. It's once for all. In fact, it's so perfect that it's written down for us. And we can hold it in our hands. How perfect is that? That we can read God's word. And then in verse 7, the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. Literally, made sure, made firm, established, fixed, confirmed, verified. You know, the, that's the, the weakness about the language of the stars, is that you're never quite sure what it means. Does it mean that, well, there's just so much out there, really, I'm nothing? Or does it mean there's so much out there that really I'm special? It can mean either thing. But God makes his message clear and fixed and sure. And so it makes wise the simple. The the heavens never quite make God's glory clear. They show the scale and the wonder of it. But the Bible gives the words and makes it sure, clear, trustworthy, firm, established. There's another difference between the message of the heavens and the message of the Bible. And that is that uh, with the heavens, the message is always going out. And as we look in verses 7 through 9, we see the message being received. So uh, in in verse 7... We see the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Someone is getting God's word now and coming to know God. And the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple, giving joy to the heart and uh, giving light to the eyes. When it says that uh, the, 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 the law of the Lord revives the soul, the word is like... Um, you know, bringing the soul back, like making the soul come back. And it's used, this, this language is used for when people are dying, they're starving, they're out of water, and they're fainting and fading away, and then they get food. And it brings them back. It restores them to life. That's what the Word of God does. When life is ebbing away, the Word of God revives the life, revives the soul. What a wonderful thing. When I wander away from God and I pierce myself with many griefs and sorrows, 
when I ruin everything in my life, and when I'm addicted to things that are opposed to my welfare, I discover the commands of God, the word of God, the message of salvation, the message of grace, and I find that God is there to revive my soul, to bring me back to life. What wonderful, encouraging news. When I open the Bible and read God's word, when I get to know God, I get to know the Redeemer, the one who comes and rescues the needy and who gives them life. And uh, verse 7b, the, the word of God makes wise the simple. So what, uh, what, what is wisdom but to know God? To know God is the main pillar of wisdom. There's another psalm that's very similar to Psalm uh, 19. It's Psalm 111, actually. You thought I was going to say Psalm 119. No, Psalm 111, it's all about creation and about God's word. And here's how it ends. It says, um, um, Psalm 111, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. As I open the Bible, I encounter God, I encounter his holy word, and I'm taught that he is great and that I'm, I'm to depend on him and rely on him and look to him. I learn the fear of the Lord and there's wisdom. I'm starting to get the main lesson of wisdom. God doesn't chide the foolish, but he gives them wisdom. Then in verse 8, there are two more things that, that happen in the life of the one who receives the word of God. It gives joy to the heart, and then it gives light to the eyes, like, like uh, the eyes are brightened. Uh, it's like when, uh, day, uh, when, when uh, Jonathan, at the end of a, a long day of battle, when he is weary and worn out, he's walking through the forest with the other soldiers. He sees some honey on the ground. He reaches out his staff. He dips it in the honey, and he puts it to his mouth. And what does it say? His eyes brightened. You know, when somebody is happy, when they're doing well, when they're healthy, they have bright, shining eyes. And when somebody is not doing well, we say their eyes are dull or drooping. And the Word of God brightens the eyes. That is, it restores life and health, happiness, strength, vigor, and joy. The Word of God brings blessing and happiness into people's lives. The heavens tell and tell and tell, but God's word revives. It makes wise. It gives joy. It brightens the eyes. It restores strength. People like to say that they commune with God in nature. David was a shepherd. He was a warrior. He spent a lot of time sleeping rough, running as a fugitive. He spent a lot of time outdoors, but he communed with God in his word because that's where God speaks and makes himself known. When you discover uh, God speaking, you discover the Redeemer. And then suddenly nature comes to life and you see God's handiwork everywhere and it's the work of a lover and a friend, the Beloved. So God calls us 
to discover him, to discover him as creator in nature, to discover him as the one who speaks in his word, and to discover him as redeemer, as his word works in our lives and restores and renews our lives. God calls us to discover him, and then as we go on in the journey, uh, as we become those who possess his word, as we become those who possess some knowledge of God, we've discovered him, then the next point that David wants to make is that God calls us to delight in him. There's great joy in knowing God, great satisfaction and gladness. And so there's a picture of this in the heavens. Verses 5 and 6, the end of verse 4, in the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun. And then verse 5, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. Um, It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. Um, Yeah, I have this uh, picture. We have this picture of me in our wedding album. And uh, it's kind of embarrassing. Actually, it's a picture of Cindy and me. uh, But the part about me is what's embarrassing. So it's uh, right at that moment after the pastor has said, uh, you may kiss your bride. And then he said, um, uh, it's my privilege to introduce to you Mr. and Mrs. Seth Rogers. I don't know if the people there clapped or I don't remember what happened. Did did they uh, cheer or something like this? But there's this picture of me just taken at that very moment. And I have this huge smile on, just grinning from ear to ear. You know, and the relatives, they look at that and say, ha ha, see that? He's really happy. Yeah, and oh man. Yeah, it was a happy moment. Well, this is the picture of the sun. Getting up in the morning, and he's a bridegroom, and he's married, and he's so happy, and everything is right in the world. This is the sun coming out. Don't you just feel it on a cool day when the sun comes out, and you feel that warmth coming down on you, and just you feel the love, you feel the niceness of it. This is the the overflow of God's goodness and love just coming down to us and shining everywhere. So the son is like this bridegroom, so full of joy because he knows about God. And he's getting up to tell the whole world about him. And he's like a champion who loves to run. And he's just, he's just a total show-off. He's just so happy that he can do this. He just feels delight in, in running his course. Uh, an athlete who's just feeling joy in his accomplishments. So it's a long journey across the whole heavens, making his circuit from one end to the other. But he always does it with joy. He's never late in the morning. He's always right on time. And uh, then it says, nothing is hidden from his heat. I think uh, a better word than heat would be warmth. And uh, that word for heat is used, it's a rare word. It's really unusual. It's only used five times in the Old Testament, the original Hebrew word. It's only used five times in the Old Testament, only in poetry about sunshine and the word is always used in a positive sense. So it's the, the nice thing about sunshine. You know, when it says heat, it feels like, ah, the sun is coming out and it's burning us all up. But uh, it's maybe warmth is a better word. Um, so God promises in the age of the kingdom one day, using the same Hebrew word, that the sun will shine seven times as brightly 
And it doesn't mean that we're going to get cooked. And it doesn't mean that our eyes are going to be blinded by the sun. It means that the, the life-giving and health-giving properties of the sun are going to be multiplied. There's going to be a total upgrade from sun version 1.0 to sun version 7.0. And it's going to be an order of magnitude better. And that God is promising us a, a world with such uh, goodness. And uh, so the sun is there just dripping and overflowing, just bursting out with life and joy that it's sharing with us. That's an image of what the Word of God is like. The Word of God is so joyful and rich. And so uh, David compares it, what is it like to have the Word of God, to possess it, to discover God? What's the delight like? Look in verses uh, uh, 10 and 11. What's it like to have the commandments of God? They're more precious than gold than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. So he compares the enjoyment of God's word with two very common experiences we all have. Getting a bunch of money. Well, maybe some of us have that. And, uh, but we all know what it's like to get some money. And Eating our favorite dessert. Uh, So those are two experiences we can totally relate to. That's what God's word is like. It's so pleasurable. It's so exciting. It's so wonderful and desirable. And then, uh, verse 11, there are two things that God's word does to give us hope. It warns us and it promises rewards. So it warns us of dangers that may be coming in our future, and it promises rewards for followers that will come in the future. In other words, God's word gives hope. And you know what? A dessert will not taste sweet if I have no hope. On death row... None of the inmates is jealous of the fellow who gets to have his pick of the menu that night because they know it's his last meal. It'll taste like sawdust. And nobody envies the the rich person when he's on his deathbed because all his money will do him no good. So without hope, pleasure is not pleasure and joy is not joy. And this is the reason why sin doesn't satisfy. It doesn't please because... It seems like just the thing that you desire and all your flesh is crying out for it, but you know that it doesn't offer a future. It's a dead end. And it's not going to be happy. It's not going to be sweet. It's not going to be good. So you have to have hope in order to have delight. So Christian, your friends who don't know Christ they don't understand your delight in God's word. They think you're eating sawdust. They think you're eating and enjoying something that has no flavor, that has no, no delightfulness or relish in it. They need to see your hope and your expectation. They need to discover it for themselves, that hope that, uh, that God gives. So, Testify, just continue to testify to them about the joy that you find in God's word. And maybe 
somehow they'll try to get their heads around that. Maybe somehow they'll be attracted. Uh, testimonies work that way. You, you have to get hope from God's Word in order to get the delight of God's Word. So David has described this wonderful pleasure that comes from God's Word. You get that pleasure when you get that hope, the hope of the future, when you take the warnings to heart, when you take the promises to heart, and when you walk in the ways to receive those promises. So invest in God's Word every day. You know, we invest in a savings account. We put a little money in every day because we're counting on that interest, having interest, and the interest compounding, and then interest on the interest on the interest. And, and we, uh, we don't mind waiting for the pleasure to come at another time. Sometimes getting up when you're tired and opening the Bible and reading is a little bit like that. <clears throat> it's like being on a camping trip and you get up in the morning and it's cold and you get out the firewood with your cold fingers, and you try to work the matches with your cold hands, and you're fumbling around. But when the fire is burning, you'll be so glad. So get out your Bible, open it up, read it, and let God speak to you and warm your heart and refresh you. God calls us to discover him. God calls us to delight in him through his word. But the psalm ends with a prayer of longing. So it it sounds like, so far, this is just one wonderful uphill climb and it's all sunny and pretty and it's such a delight to go on this journey and to experience God. And it is. That's the big picture. But to get there is going to be a slog. It's going to require perseverance. And we're going to encounter a struggle. Psalm 19 starts with its eyes toward the highest heavens and it ends with the eyes bowed down in humble prayer. Let's read these last verses. Verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The knowledge of God has a way of humbling us, of bringing us down low. This is how uh, Charles Spurgeon, that great Victorian preacher, described it in uh, Victorian flowery language. Uh, Here's what he said in one of his early sermons, how the knowledge of God humbles. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with, in them we feel a kind of self-content and go our way with the thought, Behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, we find that our plumb line cannot sound its depth 
and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, and we turn away with the thought that vain man would be wise, but he is like a wild ass's colt. And with the solemn exclamation, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. And so it is, we're humbled as we come to know God. And uh, our secrets are exposed and we're brought low before him. And so verse 12 talks about hidden faults and errors. And no matter how much progress you make, in walking with God, in knowing God, there's, you're, you're always learning. You're always discovering new things. And you're always learning that uh, there was something else that you got wrong. And there's something else that you didn't understand. And you've been going afoul of this. And you've been uh, breaking that over there. And uh, so there's continual learning to be done. And that means there's continual repentance and a continual need for God to forgive. There are the hidden errors. I discover them, and I need forgiveness. And then what about the many that I haven't discovered, that I'm not discovering? I need forgiveness every day. I stand in need of grace. And how much more than verse 13, with the willful sins? Because we really know about sin. When we talk about sin, we're usually thinking about the things we do on purpose. And those are kind of the real sins, the willful sins. Interestingly, he says, um, keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. When I assert my will and turn to my ways against God's ways, I'm actually becoming enslaved. That's the irony of sin. I'm being enslaved to myself, enslaved to my flesh, enslaved to the devil who rides the sinner like a donkey. So I find I'm ruled over by sin. I'm ruled over by my own evil will and I'm going the wrong way intentionally and on purpose and I won't turn back and I'm becoming stubborn. And so I need this wonderful prayer Keep your servant from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Oh, God, deliver me from my stubborn heart and turn me back to the right ways of the Lord. So, ask for grace. Ask God to give you grace. We have the wonderful promise of grace because our Lord Jesus Christ died to bring it to us. He gave himself in order to atone for our sins that we might be forgiven. And then he sends the gift of the Spirit to renew us, to soften our hearts, to turn us around, to do just what David is praying for here, to to keep us from willful sins and to break their rule over us. And so this is the experience of the, um, the one on journey to know God, that he's continually arriving and he's continually a long way from his destination. He's continually learning. So this is what Paul says about it. 
in Philippians 3. He says, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, wanting to be renewed in the image of God and made like him. So our goal is not just to know God as creator, to know him as, um, as the one who speaks, to know him as the redeemer and the one who changes and blesses our lives, but then to know him as savior and the one who forgives and cleanses and restores our lives and empowers us to lead a holy life. So seek a life that pleases God. As you come to know God, we're called to know him and we're called to be like him and to walk with him. That's what he says in this last verse. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. If I could ask you just to turn to one verse in the New Testament, I wanted to show you that the same thing is here. The same idea of um, praying for God to transform our lives into the image of Christ. Here's what it says. In the book of Colossians, chapter 1, page 1164, 1165. So Colossians chapter 1 and verse 9 and 10. So this is Paul's prayer, praying for the believers to live a life pleasing to God. It's the same idea. But here we get it in a New Testament context where Jesus is at the center and the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit is poured out as our empowerment. So let's just close with with these two verses here. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. So page 1165. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. And may God pour out on us that spiritual power through the Holy Spirit and that wisdom and that understanding to know him, to know his will, that his word might have its powerful effect in our lives, that we might live lives trying to be worthy out of love and lives that please him through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.